Nathan Cecil from Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, a dear friend of PBC. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be here um, from Fox Hill Road Baptist Church down on Fox Hill Road in Hampton. Uh, we send our greetings and, and we're thankful to be here uh, with you this morning. I have Calvin, our oldest son, with me. My wife and other three children uh, had a prior trip planned, so they don't have anything against PBC, but they are, they are in South Carolina this morning, um, literally making their way back shortly. And as we read earlier, we'll be in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 58, and we'll look at that in just a second. But first, let me just say two things. First, um, we are thankful for the partnership that, that we have with Pocosin Baptist. Um, but on a more personal note, I love your pastor. So, so I've grown to be, be a great friend uh, of Hobson, and I respect him and love him. And if you didn't know, some of you here know this, but Hobson and I were, back in 2016, what I, I think were the final two candidates for the senior pastor position opening here at Pagosan Baptist. And so some of you I met in 2016, and you didn't choose me. Uh, but I often tell people, and I mean this with my whole heart, and I, I've said this to Hobson, and I've said this to as many who will listen, that PBC and the search team should be commended because they made the right choice. Um, and I mean that. I God's sovereign providence uh, placed the right pastor here, and so I'm so thankful to see the work that that Hobson has done, that God's accomplished through him, um, and so I'm thankful for him and his friendship and his work here, and I'm so thankful that that your elders um, and you as a church have have been praying for us long term, but also more recently, I'm praying for us as, as a church, so I'm thankful for that. Um, so all that, I just want to say that, but second, none of that withstanding, I think Hobson made a big mistake and he did me and you all a huge disservice by breaking down the sermon text for today the way he did. He, just did, he, just, he, he made the wrong choice. I realize he's probably getting ready to go on the sabbatical and he was doing his best. But honestly, today's passage, there's two sermons in the verses today. 50, verse 53, and I'll show you in just a second, makes a clear transition from one section to another. So that verses 53 through 58 should be a sermon unto itself. That's just the way it is, so just hear me say that. However, because of my love for Hobson, because of my desire to serve you well, and because I don't want to mess Jason up for next week, um, I am prepared to preach the passage that I was assigned. So we will look at that um, shortly. Now, let me pray for our time, um, and then we'll, we'll look at those verses. But, but would you pray with me? Now, Father, as we come, we, we are your people because of what Christ has done for us. We once were not a people, but now we are your people We've been bought with, with something much more precious than silver or gold, with the blood of our Messiah. And so we, we, want, to, we want to learn to love him better. We want to be conformed into his image more. Um, and as we just sang, when, when he shall come with trumpet sound, our call is, is to be found in him alone, um, dressed in his righteousness and not our own. And so we want to worship Christ. We want him to be made much of, we want him to be magnified. And so I pray to that end that the reading of this word would 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 warm our affections, that we would love him more than anything else and, and live lives uh, to make much of him. He is worthy. And we love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have, if you can, turn to Matthew chapter 13. I, I just want to set the stage. Um, and I do want you to look at, at verse 53, because to understand the passage, it's going to be helpful to see verse 53. 
Because ver what for verse 53 does is it, it marks the end of what is the third discourse of Matthew's gospel. So there in verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. So, so that's a transition. He's finished a section of teaching. And so you've been going through the gospel of Matthew, and, and I hope you've seen that Matthew's gospel is really, it's organized around five discourses or five main sections of teachings from Jesus, the first being chapters 5, 6, and 7, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and then the, the sending out of the 12 in chapter twelve in, uh, in chapter 10, and then in chapter 13, what we're coming to the end of is this, this kingdom, these parables of the nature of the kingdom. And so verse 53 marks the transition that ends the, the third discourse and then moves Matthew's gospel into a section of narrative. And so with these five discourses, they're interspersed with narrative sections where there's just records of the mighty works of Jesus, the healings, and, and there's some interactions, but they're, 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 they're narrative sections that move the gospel forward. And in the verses we'll look at today, Jesus concludes his teaching on the nature of the kingdom by telling four short parables. And so this is the conclusion of his teaching on the nature of the kingdom. And then in verses 53 through 58, Matthew records his return to Nazareth or his hometown, and he receives a welcome that throughout Matthew's gospel is becoming more and more familiar to him, which is a welcome that clearly illustrates the continued opposition and rejection of Jesus and the message that he came to proclaim. And so it'll set the way for, pave the way for next week when, when John, the forerunner to the Messiah, also meets opposition and martyrdom. But let's look at those. If, you, if you're taking notes, the outline will work through these verses. There's four sections. We'll just work through these one at a time. So first, in verses 44 through 46, there'll be a priceless kingdom. So that's the, the two parables make the same point, a priceless kingdom. And then second, we'll see a discriminating kingdom, a parable that, that teaches th this discriminating nature of the kingdom, verses 47 through 50. And then thirdly, a kingdom of scribes, kind of the conclusion of his teaching in this chapter 13 in verses 51 and 52. And then finally, we see the rejected king in verses 53 through 58. So those are the four sections, and we'll work through them one at a time. So first, a priceless kingdom, verses 44 through 46. And, and as, we, as we look at these verses, I wonder if you remember those commercials. They're from a few years back, but, but, but the, the, they went something like this. Gas, $50. Ticket to the game, $100. Seeing the joy on your child's face when their favorite team wins the Super Bowl. Priceless. Do you remember that? There are some things money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. Right? These, these are commercials, MasterCard commercials. And, and they were great commercials because we still remember them. We still remember their MasterCard commercials, but they're also great because they get to a truth. They strike at a truth, don't they? That there are, in fact, some things that money can't buy. And if you're a young person, I realize this is difficult to convince you of this truth. But for most of us, the longer we live, the more clear that reality becomes that truly there are some things that money cannot buy. There, there, there are things that, that money cannot provide. And as we look at these first two parables in verses 44, 45, and 46, Jesus, I think, is making a similar point to those MasterCard commercials. The point being that in both of these parables, he, he's showing the priceless nature of the kingdom. It's a, 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 a kingdom that cannot be bought. It's priceless. And to make that point, he, he compares the kingdom to two separate treasures. 
And both of these treasures, when discovered, they, they elicit this wholehearted response that says, whatever the cost, whatever it takes, I must possess this treasure. And, and both these parables point to the priceless nature of the kingdom. So look there at verse 44, this first parable. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now, as we come to this parable, you've been studying parables for several weeks and then hopefully you've seen that, that the purpose of parables is not to determine every single detail. We don't need to press into and say, well, what, is this, what does this mean? What does this mean? What is every detail? Instead, the parables are told so that they convey one main point. What's the main idea of the parable? That's, that's the point of parables. There's a main point. And the main idea of this first one-sentence parable is really easy to grasp, I think. I mean, we have this, this picture, a, a man finds a treasure. We don't know what kind of treasure, it doesn't matter. Now, we, we don't know how the treasure got there, it doesn't matter. We don't know if, if he was treasure hunting, it doesn't matter. What we know is that he found a hidden treasure. Which, I mean, just, just a, a, a note of that time and place, that wasn't uncommon in the first century. I mean, there were no truest banks or vaults or safes. And so if someone is, is forced to go on a long journey, they, they, they can't deadbolt their front door. So they take their valuables and they bury them. Or if there's an invading army and, and you don't want all of your priceless treasure, treasures to be plundered, you, you'll go hide it in a field so that when the war's over, you can come back and find it. And so people would bury their valuables in an attempt to keep them safe. And so for him to happen upon a buried treasure isn't uncommon. He isn't looking for it, but he happens upon it. He finds it. And when he finds it, notice what Jesus says he does. The first thing he does is not to take it home. It's not to go to the antique roadshow and see how much he could get for it. It's not to go tell all of his friends about it. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he finds it. And the first thing he does is he covers it up. Do you see that? And he covered it up, not because it wasn't valuable, but on the contrary, because it was so valuable. He covered it up. And then, in his joy, goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy that field, to possess that field. His immediate response upon finding the treasure is to cover it up and then go do whatever he has to in order to possess that treasure that's buried in the field. And so he buys the field, but it's not about the field, is it? I mean, sure, owning property, land, was, was probably pretty valuable back then. But it's not about the value of the land. It's about what the man knew was buried in that field. And the value of that treasure was so great that the man went and sold all that he had. He sold it all. But, but notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, he went and sold it. Notice the descriptor that Jesus used of this man's action. In his joy, he went and sold all that he had. Right? It's in his joy, he parts with everything that he has. Now, some people look at this parable and, and want to teach the self-sacrifice required to follow Jesus. And, and they point to the great price. It's everything that he had, that he sold. He gave it all up, they want to say. And they highlight the cost of following Jesus. Now, there is certainly a cost to following Jesus, but that's not the point of this parable. And we know that because of how this man went about selling everything that he had. In his joy, he sold everything. I mean, you get, you get the picture. This man has a, he puts up the, the, fir, the yard sale sign and he, he's nailing signs on, on the street at the intersection saying yard sale at his address and people are coming. And, and everything is walking away. People are buying all of his stuff. 
Like the fine china that, it, that him and his wife got for their, their, their marriage that they've never used. Right? It's really valuable, but, but it's, it's walking away. Or, or his priceless baseball card collection. It, it's sold and it's going. Or, or whatever else. Everything that he has is going. And as he's watching it, he, there's not this sentimental part that's saying, oh, I, I shouldn't let that go. Or, wait, 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 can you pay more for that? No, he is gladly, joyfully watching it all go away. And he can do that with joy because he knows what he's going to possess in selling everything. You see, the cost isn't really a cost when the result is possessing a priceless treasure. And so he could part with it all. And Jesus is telling us in this parable that there can be treasure such that it is worth selling everything in order to possess. And that treasure in this case is membership in the kingdom, being part of God's kingdom. That's the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. It's a kingdom that cannot be overpaid for. No cost is too high because possessing the kingdom, membership in God's kingdom cannot be measured in monetary value. And so that's the first parable. It's, it's a priceless kingdom. But, but look, there's a second parable right after it, verse 45. Again, Jesus says, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it, that is the one pearl of great value. Now, unlike the first parable, this parable is about a man who's, who is actually looking for things of value. He, he's a merchant in search of fine pearls. Right? So he's looking for multiple pearls. And he finds not pearls in the plural, but one pearl. He finds one of great value. And then when he finds that one pearl, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that one pearl. Again, it's, it's language that we're familiar with because it was same similar language to the verse immediately prior. He, he finds one pearl, and then he sells everything. And he sells everything in order to buy the one. And this man, unlike the first, this, this man was probably wealthy. His, his living was made by traveling the world, selling huge quantities of merchandise. He was, he was a dealer of, of fine things. And so his livelihood came from buying and selling expensive things. And so for him to find one pearl and then go sell everything makes a, the same point as the first parable, which is that obtaining or finding this thing of great value is worth whatever it costs. It's a priceless kingdom. And again, we see that it is well to take decisive action while the opportunity is there and that no cost is too great when it comes to gaining the kingdom. And so these two parables make the one point, the nature of the kingdom is priceless, which I think leads to, to a simple point of application for the believers that in these parables, with these two men, we see the conduct of a true Christian. I mean, th th this is the, the, the conduct of the true believer. J.C. Ryle says this about, about these two men. He says, both men were convinced that they had found a thing of great value. Both were satisfied that it was worth a great present sacrifice to make this thing their own. Others might wonder at them. Others might think them foolish for paying such a sum of money for the field and the pearl, but they knew what they were about. They were sure that they were making a good bargain. Behold, in this single picture, the conduct of a true Christian explained. He is what he is and does what he does in his religion because he is thoroughly persuaded that it is worth while. The Christian knows the truth of this parable because the Christian has come to know the true joy that comes through obtaining the kingdom, the, the true joy that comes through being reconciled to God through faith in Christ. I mean, this is one of the foundational truths for the Christian because our lives 
believer, our lives are filled with, with competing values. Our entire pilgrimage as members of the kingdom is filled with others saying, it's not worth it. There, there's another field with, with better treasure. That There's more value over there. You, you, are you sure you want to give up all of that? Do, do you want to give up all of that? Do you really believe it's worth that? And over and over and over, we are reminded that the most important things in this life, all of them find their value underneath our relationship to God and His kingdom. That is the most important thing in the world. That is the most important thing about us. All other pursuits are trivial by comparison. And so, so I, I, I want to ask myself, what does my life say about the value of the kingdom? Now, what do my priorities say about the value of this kingdom that I've been made a partaker of? How do, how do I view my losses in light of the value of this kingdom? How am I planning my future in light of the value of the kingdom? Brother, sister, if your faith is in Christ, you've been reconciled to God the Father through Him. You are part of His kingdom and you are part of a priceless kingdom. And membership in this kingdom shapes our lives and perspectives. And so let us hear the call of Christ. He's made us partakers of a priceless kingdom. Let us live in light of that reality, which, which leads to a second point, the second section here. Because Jesus tells those two par- parables about the, the priceless nature of the kingdom, but then he tells a third parable. In this parable, it, it's a bit of a turn. Jesus shifts here in this third parable to talk about the, the nature of the kingdom and this final separation that's, that's going to take place in the last days or at the last time. And so look there, the discriminating kingdom, verses 47 through 50. This is really similar to the parable of the weeds up earlier in chapter 13. But, but listen again to the parable of verse 47 through 50. Jesus continues, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And so this parable, again, like all of the parables, it it paints a picture uh, that would have been well known to his audience. Fishing was commonplace in that region. Fishing boats and and fishermen would have littered the the landscape there along the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus uses the image of a net thrown into the sea to catch fish. And so this net catches all types of fish. And this net probably catches even some things that aren't fish. It's thrown out and there's weights on it and you just pull it. And it it gets everything in its way. And so when it's full, the men have to pull it along up on the shore and then they begin sorting. And Jesus says, specifically, these men sort out the good into containers and the bad they throw away. Now, again, Jesus doesn't specify what makes some fish good and some fish bad. Maybe some fish were bad and that they had died in the process. Maybe they're, they're sunk, they're, they had sunk to the bottom of the sea and they were just dragged in with the net. Or, or maybe some fish were considered ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, the, according to Jewish law. Maybe those were the bad that, that couldn't be eaten. Maybe the, some of it was bad because they weren't fish at all, but it was debris or trash that had been dragged in. We don't know what made the bad bad, but what we do know is that the point of the parable is the process of separating the good from the bad. That's what Jesus wants his hearers to get. And we know that because of verse 49. So it will be. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them, that is the the evil, into the fiery furnace. In that place, 
the destination of the evil, of the wicked. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this I mentioned, it's similar to the parable of the weeds. But, but look, if you look just up in chapter 13, at the end of verse 40. So this is in the parable of the weeds. In verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. That phrase, so it will be at the end of the age, that's at the end of verse 40. You look there at the, end of, at the beginning of verse 49 with this second parable, so it will be at the end of the age. Same exact phrase. And so Jesus is making the connection. In both cases, it's referring to this, this event at the end of time, this great separation or this final judgment that's going to take place. And so Jesus wants his hearers to know about the reality of this great separation. And so in chapter 13, we have Jesus in just a matter of a few verses making very plain the reality of a coming judgment. And hopefully, as you come and, and you sit in this, this service week after week, you realize that, that this is not, this teaching is not the agenda of any preacher. This is not me preaching my agenda. This is Jesus and his words and his agenda. And so Jesus, in chapter 13, is confronting you with the reality of hell and judgment. This is Jesus. And his teaching is, couldn't be clearer. Spurgeon says that those who would have us think lightly of the punishment of the ungodly have no countenance in the teachings of the Lord Jesus. And so if you have an issue with a final judgment, it's not with me. This is Jesus teaching us. And even as we're confronted with that reality, as often as we read about hell and judgment, Jesus, the one who speaks most often about it in the New Testament, we also recognize this. Jesus speaks about hell and judgment as the one whose life would end in judgment. I mean, the Gospel of Matthew isn't going to end with Jesus on his soapbox pointing his finger at all the unrighteous evil people who reject him. That's not how the story ends. Instead, it ends with him going to Jerusalem to lay down his life for them, his enemies. Jesus speaks so much about hell and judgment because his very purpose, the very purpose of his life and death was to experience that judgment so that his enemies wouldn't have to. So, so he's speaking about hell and judgment, but he's doing so in the midst of a life that's going to do something so that his enemies can escape that hell and judgment. This is not an unloving teaching about hell and judgment. And so my hope is that I, along with anyone else charged to, to preach and teach God's word, may never shy away from preaching the whole counsel of God, which necessarily includes the promise, the certainty of hell and judgment. So may, 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 may I never shy away from that, while at the same time, may I never shy away from continually holding forth the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross in the place of ruined sinners like you and like me. They have to go together. And so again, the, the clear meaning of this parable, there is a day coming, friend, Jesus refers to it as the end of the age, but there is a day coming when there will be a final separation. There will be a judgment and all the evil will be removed and cast into hell. That is the final resting spot for the unrighteous. And the only hope for fallen sinful people like you and like me is the salvation that comes through faith in Christ alone. Friend, Christ has come. Christ has been crucified. Christ has been buried. And Christ has been raised. And there's salvation in no other name. There's only one mediator between God and man. And that mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the good news for you is that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Christ has been raised and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he is making intercession for his people even now. So that your sin cannot condemn you. Because Christ has paid for it. And so friend, friend, if you're here and your, your faith is not in Jesus. If you're not trusting in Christ. I would simply ask, why would you knowingly face the certainty of judgment. Rejecting the way that's been provided for you through Christ. Why? Why would you do that? Christ has come and made a way for peace with God. And that way is being presented to you week after week after week. I know Hobson and I know several other elders that preach here. Others that preach here. I know if you attend this church regularly, you hear the offer of the gospel. And that offer is the same here today. Turn to Christ and be saved. Repent of your sins and put your faith in him. Cast your eyes on him as the serpent raised in the wilderness, and, and you will be saved. And, and that's the call. And, and, and I pray that the Lord would, would convict you of that call until you close your eyes in death or until the day comes when the end of the age arrives. But when that day comes, friend, it will be too late. And so turn to Christ. That is the call. And I think we see that from this parable. Well, then we, we go finally, or thirdly, to the kingdom of scribes. So verses 51 through 52. The, this next set, and these, again, these mark the end of the parables here in chapter 13. And so they mark the end of this, this third discourse. As I showed, the, the, the verse 53 marks the transition when Jesus finished these parables. He went away from there. And so verses 51 and 52 serve as the conclusion of his teaching. This is like the, the final lesson in his course on kingdom life or the nature of the kingdom. And so he concludes, look at verse 51 with a question. And, and at this point, he, it's just him and his disciples. So, so he asked them, verse 51, have you understood all these things? That's a dangerous question, isn't it? Well, Jesus gets the response. They said to him, yes. Now, we don't know how Jesus... Uh, th- what, what he thinks about this response. He doesn't correct it. Now, he, he, he Often he'll correct, if, get behind me, Satan, he'll say to Peter. So he doesn't correct it, so he can't assume they're wrong per se. But we also realize that there's a long way for these disciples to go. And we'll see that, that process throughout the rest of the gospel. That They're still growing in their grasp and understanding of the nature of, of Jesus and, and his ministry. But at this point, we can assume that they're on the right track and that Jesus is pleased with their desire to know and learn from him. They're, 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 they're sticking with him. And so they say yes. And Jesus, to conclude this section in, in a very fitting matter, concludes this teaching in, uh, on parables with a parable. Specifically about the one who does listen and understand his teaching. So this is the final parable that, that tells about all the parables that have come before. So verse 52, and he said to them, Therefore... Every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now, normally the, the, the word scribes in the New Testament, it's a, a negative term. It's, it's a reference normally to the officially trained Jewish leaders. But that's not the case here. That's not who he's talking about. Some people wonder, well, who are the scribes here? He's not talking about scribes that, that are converted and come follow him. Instead, after taking time to, to deliberately teach his disciples privately, he concludes this section by, by talking about, by, by referring to their claim to understand everything that's come before. I mean, the, he's, he's been talking about the nature of the kingdom. He spent almost all of chapter 13 describing what the kingdom is like. 
At the conclusion, he refers to them as, as scribes trained in the kingdom. I think that's who he's referring to, these disciples who've been instructed by him, by their teacher. They're the scribes trained for the kingdom of heaven. They've, they've just heard a whole crash course on what the kingdom is like. And so he refers to them as the scribes of the kingdom, but what does he say about them? The parable, the scribe, this person who, who's heard my teachings and understands, is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And so the picture, the, the master of the house, this, this, this character, this person, it, it's a picture of a household, a, a, a householder, or, or the master of a house who goes into his storehouse, so the place where he has all of his stuff stored, and every day he'd go in and he'd bring out what's needed for that day, whether it's food or other necessities. And so Jesus says the scribe trained for the kingdom is like that master who knows what is in the storehouse and is able to provide what's needed. And so Jesus, in this last parable, uses it in order to teach the disciples that to be experts trained in the kingdom, that there's, there's two aspects. There's the old and the new, and the, the scribe trained for the kingdom who hears the words of Jesus is able to reconcile the two. So, so that the teaching of the scribe, the understanding of, of Jesus is, is, a, is a fulfillment or a combination or a reconciliation of what was before and what has come in him, the old and the new. And so Jesus is telling his disciples they must be able to recognize the old covenant teachings and truths as well as the, the new teachings of Jesus. More specifically, these disciples must be able to understand and teach how Jesus fulfills the old, the law and the prophets, which he made clear in the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. They, they must understand how Jesus comes as the promised king who, who comes to establish the kingdom the kingdom that's beginnings come in the old covenant. And so Jesus doesn't come on the scene with, of, of, of only something new. He comes as one who came to fulfill what was before, what came before him. In other words, you can't understand the nature of the kingdom. You can't understand the life and ministry of Jesus, his teaching about the kingdom without understanding what came before. That, that there's an old and a new. The coming of Jesus and, and the establishment of of God's kingdom on earth, it's not contextless. The roots run deep in the Old Testament, in the things that came before. And understand the, the history of God with his people, the Israelites. And so, so Jesus comes as the fulfillment of all that came before. And so the, the well-trained scribe, the scribe of the kingdom, proclaims a kingdom that was started with Adam and Eve in the garden and fulfilled in the coming of the king. And I think we can, we can see here that the, the, these disciples are kingdom scribes for the purpose of instructing others. I think this is the call for them. This is a call that would be reissued in the Great Commission. Teaching, making disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus had commanded. And so I think for the believer, the, this, this parable is for us. We are called to pass on the teachings of Jesus. Everyone who's a follower of Jesus, not just an elder, not just a Sunday school teacher, not just a parent, everyone, regardless of your stage in life or your calling in the church, regardless of your position or your felt qualifications, every follower of Christ is called to be a scribe trained for the kingdom. And so aim to study and pass on the teachings of the kingdom that have come through Christ as a commitment to following Christ, that's the call, to make disciples. 
And that concludes the, the chapter 13 teaching, within, which then transitions, Matthew transitions to the close of chapter 13, which is the rejection of Jesus. Look there quickly at verses 53 through 58. So after concluding this third discourse, Matthew then records the return of Jesus back to his hometown. And when he returns, the people of his hometown of Nazareth, they're astonished. Look at verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So he goes to his, to his home church, and, and he's teaching them. Probably much of what was, been taught, what was taught in, the, in chapter 13 earlier. And he's teaching them so that they were astonished, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And so Jesus shows up, and they encounter his teaching, and they hear about his miracles, and maybe they see some of his miracles, but they are astonished. They can't believe it. One translation says they are amazed at him. But that, that amazement is followed. Look at verse 55. They start asking some questions. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? I mean, maybe they're all in the synagogue with them. They're like, don't, don't, don't you guys, isn't he, he's, we know him and, and he's related to you guys, right? right? That These are the questions. And these questions, they're, they're not necessarily bad questions. They're, they're questions that these townspeoples are, are asking in order to explain where Jesus got his wisdom, how he became what he appears to be. They, they, they want to know, how is Jesus able to perform so many mighty works? They don't teach that in the carpenter shop. They, they begin asking questions that remind them of, of who they know Jesus to be. And so in light of their confusion and uncertainty, they fall back on what they know. In fact, this is evidence, isn't it, that, that Jesus grew up pretty normally. There's nothing in his life. So, so contrary to some of the, the Gnostic Gospels that say, here's the childhood Jesus performing miracles, doing outrageous things, that, that just isn't true. Because if that were true, they'd say, oh, remember when he, when he turned that pigeon from clay and he made it come to life? That, that's nothing. There's nothing about his childhood that would, that would tell them, oh, wait, maybe he's special. It's, it's actually quite the opposite. There's nothing about his childhood or his, his hometown relationships that say he is who he says he is. And so they know, in their minds, that Jesus is one of them. When these townspeople consider what they know about Jesus, there's nothing remarkable, there's nothing in his life, in his upbringing or his childhood, that would explain what they saw taking place. Their reasoning, this is what's going on in their mind, their reasoning that his rightful place was in their own community, doing the things that the villagers did. According to them, he had no business teaching people and doing miracles. In their minds, one commentator says, they cut him down to size. And so they're confronted with his teaching and his works and say, no, 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 we know him. We know him. And so, so it doesn't say explicitly, but, but I would say they're probably closer to the, the religious leaders who, who, who attribute his work to the, to the demonic. Remember there? It was a source thing. They say, well, well he's doing this by, by Satan himself. I think they are more in line with those, those, those religious leaders. Because verse 56, their final question, where then did this man get these things? Where did he get all these things? They don't understand what's going on in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. 
They can't wrap their minds around the fact that the kid who grew up in Nazareth is going around teaching with great wisdom and performing so many mighty works. And, and so it's an issue of authority. They don't understand how he can do this. And so instead of believing what Jesus had said, what he had told them himself, instead of recognizing the evidence that was before them in, in his words and his works, instead of believing that, they refused to believe. They refused to see the identity of the king that was far greater than that of the carpenter. And so, verse 57, they took offense at him. They're offended by him. That, that, that he would claim to be able to, to speak with wisdom and do mighty works. They're offended at him. In responding to, to this refusal, this rejection, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works here because of their unbelief. Those who knew the Messiah most well, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What a tragedy. And it's this encounter in his hometown that Matthew moves on from the third discourse and shifts back to, to, this, to this ministry of Jesus. But what Matthew's going to do in the coming chapters is going to highlight the rejection of Jesus. A rejection that is, that is not unique to this prophet. In fact, if you know your Old Testament, the prophets were rejected regularly. And in fact, next week you'll see a story of the last, the greatest old covenant prophet was more than rejected. He was martyred. And so Jesus goes the way of the prophets and being rejected by even those who knew him best. And in this rejection, I think we see a final point of application, which I think this is, this is a point of application for the Christian, which is the danger of familiarity with Jesus. I mean, not just familiarity in the sense of rejecting Jesus and refusing to turn to him in faith. I think that's a real danger for the non-believer. But the dangers of familiarity for those who have already put their faith in Jesus. I think there's still a danger of, of being too familiar with him. And, and as I thought about this, there were, there were a handful of specific situations where a familiarity with Jesus can be dangerous. And it's dangerous because familiarity can tend to, to, to lead to a staleness. I don't know of a better word. It's a stale familiarity. Of course, we want to be well acquainted with Jesus. We want to be familiar with him. However, there are some situations where we can be tempted to a stale familiarity, which can be dangerous. And so, for instance, we're tempted to familiarity in, in worship, in, in gathering week after week. You come to PBC every Sunday, and you sing songs. Some weeks they're new songs, but a lot of times they're, they're the same old songs. And you hear prayers that, that are similar prayers. And you take the Lord's Supper in similar ways on, on the certain week of, of every month. And, and there's a familiarity. There's a liturgy that if we're not careful, we find ourselves week after week thinking, I've, I've heard this before. Yeah, I know that song. I know the spiel. I, I know it's the body and the blood. I know that, right? And if, if, we're caref if we're not careful, we can miss the Christ who is the object and foundation of our very worship, who is presented to us week after week as crucified, buried, and raised. So we must guard against that familiarity. And 
in worship, also in, in, in simple Bible reading. And as Christians, we should be giving ourselves to regular personal Bible reading. But in that practice, it's so easy to fall into routines that lack newness or freshness. I mean, we're in February. So I imagine if you've ever committed to a Bible reading plan, you've read these verses years. Year, everyone can get through February. So you've read the Genesis and the Exodus. And you're like, yeah, I read this last year and the year before that. So you're familiar with it. And it's easy to fall into routines. And yeah, I know what happens in this story. I, I know what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. Yeah, I, I, I've heard this parable before. And we have to be careful that we don't miss the Christ who is the object and foundation of our Bible reading and worship. As a parent, how easy to assume my kids know all they need to know. They've heard the story. But, but, but when this, this teaching of, of the doctrines of, of the church, when it lacks regularity and consistency, when we don't communicate with earnestness or we don't communicate from recent experiences, it's no wonder kids sometimes grow up in Christian homes and Christian churches who then leave and are turning elsewhere for answers. There's a staleness that can accompany teaching about Christ and the gospel and the church. We have to be on guard of that, against that. The last example I would give is evangelism. There's a staleness. I know the Romans road. I know God, man, Christ's response. I know that. If I'm not regularly believing the gospel myself, reminding myself of the privileges that have come to me through the gospel of Christ, if I'm not rejoicing in the inheritance that's mine through Christ, if I'm not regularly aware of the kingdom of darkness of which I was once a member in the way of life, following the prince of the power of the air that I once lived, if I'm not constantly remembering that, I can miss the glory of Christ and the salvation of sinners like me. It can become stale. And so our aim is to go back again and again to the scriptures, to the Christ of the scriptures, and to his words and works found in the scriptures that remind us again and again and again of the Christ that we've been saved to worship. And as we do, we will be reminded that this is the Christ who was despised and rejected by men. The Christ who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The Christ who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Christ who we esteem stricken, spit, smitten by God and afflicted. The Christ who was pierced for our transgression. The one who was crushed for our iniquities. The one upon whom the chastisement that brought us peace was placed. The one by whose wounds we are healed. Brother, sister, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've, we've turned everyone to his own way. And the good news for us this morning is that Christ, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's good news for us this morning. Let, let's pray. Father, it is truly good news that while we were your enemies, while we were still sinners, you died for us.